in the interest of the topic of this conversation, I had a cold open that was relevant to what we're talking about today. And I wanted to know from both of you guys, what is the worst product or thing, a service, whatever you have ever bought online? <laughs> like you want to go first? Do you want me to try to go first? Yeah, no, I got one. Uh, <laughs> I hate to say it, but this was actually a client's broad, uh, product. Oh, we were testing it out. Well, it was a former client. He's not a client anymore, but uh, we were working with this uh, Korean company and they were positive that they had the best, like, I think they called it like a, a cooling pillow or something um, or a towel or something that you put on your neck. Like, oh, it stays frozen for blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Every single review was saying that like, oh, this doesn't work. It doesn't last. It, you know, this lasts like 30 minutes, doesn't do what it says, blah, blah, blah. So I bought it to try it. And I have to agree, it did not work at all. <laughs> and that was a huge point of contention with our clients. Uh, so we ended up having to, to drop that company because it just wasn't a good enough product for us to work with. So they had they had a bunch of bad reviews and you're like, well, let, let me test this. And then it didn't work. And then you literally went back to the client and were like, honestly, like we can't help you here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much this is going to constantly work against us on all of our efforts. So we were like, eh, you know, maybe this isn't the best. Maybe you need to fix your manufacturing. And he took that personally. So <laughs> that was the end of that. <laughs> we haven't run into this yet, but I, it's been in the back of my head that eventually we're going to get a landscaper that just has God awful reviews on on Google and they're like at a two star rating or something like that. I'm gonna have to go back and be like, dude, I don't know if we'd be a good fit for you. <laughs> like we're a marketing agency, not a PR agency. The best thing you can do is do better, right? Like- <laughs> <laughs> the best marketing is your own is your own quality of work, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's only so many ways you can spin spin a spin it. So what's the saying? You can't put a makeup on a pig. <laughs> oh yeah, no. You, yeah, yeah, if you put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have a specific uh, like individual product, but I, just as a category, I, I hate and I've had just repeat repeated bad experience with clothing. I know it, that's probably not nice to hear, especially with Amazon, right? Because I, I know that that's a, a huge like category difficulty for that for sellers on Amazon because of the frequency of returns for clothes. And some people will even do it just like, oh, well, I'll buy two because I know I can just return the one and then I'll try two sizes and then, you know, ship the one back. But I, I, I hate, but I don't know the solution either at this point too, right? Because so many uh, brick and mortars are going out of business. So like if you want to try on clothing to find out what kind of size you are for a new brand or something, you almost have no choice but to buy, try things on, ship it back. And it's just a nightmare. I'm I'm an old grandpa. I told Jake, I'm an old grandpa about this stuff. I just want to be able to go to a store and buy my clothes. But I think Cody doesn't like clothes shopping so much that he has to do it in the moment. And then if he has to wait a day after purchasing it or two to then try it on, I think I think the whole effect is just killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I told him when we got back from Japan, I said, I found a shirt that I like and I bought, what, eight? <laughs> like, great. Okay. I'm good for three years now. Um, no, that's exactly why like we as an agency don't work with apparel brands. It's because the number of uh, returns are so crazy. Uh, you get people that buy like, you know, four different sizes, three different sizes, to see which one's the correct one or three different colors to see which one they like more. And then you get all the returns back and it's like, it just looks bad on the account. It's tough for us to manage and it's kind of a nightmare. So we're like, 
nah, yeah, we, you, we just you try to calculate it. ROAS and everything is like, well, you know, wait, <laughs> wait a few weeks and it'll be, <laughs> it'll be different again. Like you never know, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super frustrating. So, uh, but there's no real good solution for it either. I mean, there were a couple of those companies that were doing like the like trunks or whatever of like clothes and stuff for a while. I don't even know if those still exist, but shopping I, for clothes online is really hard. I was telling Lauren this the other day that Amazon has, they now have, or they're coming out. I don't know if they, it's out now or if they're coming out with a tag that basically says this item is frequently returned. Really? And yeah, I, I read it in a stack marketer newsletter and it's it's meant to kind of let the consumer know that a product gets frequently returned. Um, so it's more of like a ding on the seller. Yeah. But I was telling Lauren, I'm like, how how um how long or do you think it's possible that buyers will start getting flagged as frequent returners? And they do it uh, Stripe already, right? This this customer has frequent refunds. Right? It says right on. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. so yeah. I know it's a possibility, but like that's it's a huge problem too. Um, she, or she doesn't the, think. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say the other one is people saying that like the product was never delivered. We see that a lot. It's oh. like, oh, it was shipped. I never received it. I get my money back, and then like <laughs> the unit's yeah. gone. So you know, who knows? I I said that um, if Amazon ever does do that and like flags buyers as uh frequent returners i could see that brands or even brands if they're if they're getting their their label marked as you know this product is uh frequently returned i could see brands not opting into like i don't know how it works maybe you can tell us later but like how like not opting into like free prime shipping or anything like that like you not have to pay to return because you know like clothing it's got to be eating into the bottom line at some point for sure and she doesn't think it'll happen, but I, I will think they'll test it. It's like one of the things is like you were, you're so reliant on Amazon's FBA when you're selling on Amazon. Uh, like if you don't have the product in the FBA centers, your visibility's hit and like all these other things. But if didn't they get uh, like a class action class action lawsuit against that recently? Yeah, uh, that, like, that's what I was gonna say. If they actually <laughs> enforce anything and anything actually changes, which it hasn't, uh, then maybe that'll be more of a realistic option. But yeah, you're screwed. Like we've done this with, we worked with a suit brand for a while. That was another difficult one because uh, suit sizes are extremely hard to calculate as well, unless you have like a tailor doing it for you. Um, mm-hmm. That was another one. Frequent returns. Their The FBA fees were killing them. Uh, it was really, really tough. Um, but yeah, unfortunately you have to play with uh, you have to sell with FBA to be able to like compete with the competition that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, before I get off too, too off track, uh, the worst thing that I've ever purchased online is anything furniture related. If you buy furniture online, it just sucks. It always comes to, well, it comes to you in a box obviously, but then you gotta assemble it. And most of it, one doesn't assemble properly. doesn't fit together properly. Um, or it's just way cheaper. And I, I feel like I'm not buying cheap furniture like it's still relatively expensive but the only furniture that comes in is like the very expensive stuff that's already assembled like my love seat upstairs <laughs> and but everything else just like i told lauren i'm like i'm done i'm done with this online furniture stuff like we're going to like actual furniture stores and buying it there where does where does like facebook marketplace fall then and like is it online is it local? i i is prefer so no because you got to pick it up i think you order it from facebook marketplace that's like ordering online but if you go and pick it up and it's already assembled i'll give it grace because one i'm already paying 
you know, 10 bucks for an end table. So it doesn't matter how terrible it is. <laughs> but if it's like something nice, it's already put together. I can test it and feel it there. And it kind of goes along with your brick and mortar clothing thing, Cody. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, And then also, it, it's worth the furniture because you have to return it in the same box it came from. But like those things are like strategically packed by NASA engineers. <laughs> and so like, like you, you pull out of the box and you're just screwed. <laughs> it's never going back in. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but all right, uh, guys, thanks for tuning in again to the ever Rose podcast. Um, we actually have a, uh, another guest on, on the show who we, uh, who reached out to us and then we wanted to bring him on because he provides a unique perspective to the agency setting that, um, well in the past we've kind of taken a dump on, which is e-commerce agencies. And in the past, we've always said that, um, e-commerce isn't exactly the best niche to get into because of typically the client the clientele in it. But when you are just getting into the agency space and marketing in general, e-commerce might be the first thing you jump to just because it's just online transactional, easy to market, easy to, um, to, to track. But, uh, uh, Mike, uh, bags, bag, right. I'm saying your last name, right? Yeah. yeah you got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, embarrassing. Um, so, uh, Mike Beg, he is, you're the founder of, Amazon advisors or AMZ advisors. Um, I figured you, you should just give your introduction because clearly it, it's, I'm not doing you any justice. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And, uh, well, thank you for, for that. You got my name, right? That's a, uh, that's Perfect. a good one. But, uh, you, you never know how many people always ask me, is that how you say it? Uh, is it bag or, is it, G is it it. bag or bedge? Or beg again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bag is pretty straightforward. What is it originally? Like what's your ancestry? Uh, Scottish. Oh, okay. Well, I, I was, is. to be, to be fair, I was thinking about putting an S at the end of it, but then I was like, that, that that's very common right. as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very common as well. Like that's a, that's the other one I always get. So, mm. um, even all, all my friends call me bags anyway. Uh, so literally it's, ah, it's not okay. a problem, but, that's uh, yeah, about myself, about my company, I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders of AMZ advisors. Uh, we've been around since 2015 and what we do is we, help brands scale on Amazon uh, primarily. We manage some other marketplaces, but we really take brands from doing about 1 million to doing 10 million plus on the Amazon platform. And the way we do that is a variety of different marketing strategies, advertising strategies, positioning, merchandising, uh, and really helping our clients build their online funnel uh, on the Amazon platform. So that is my experience. I, I do some other stuff in e-commerce, but that's the main business that I run. Awesome. Why, why e-com? Like what was the original thing that got you into it? Well, originally when we were starting, I mean, e-com was growing, but like no one was really doing it. I mean, this was like the first, my first steps in e-commerce were like 2014, which doesn't seem that long ago, but the evolution of e-commerce over the past like five years has happened rapidly compared to what it was like back then. So my first exposure to it was uh, working in uh, real estate development for Sears. Uh, I started seeing Amazon actually buying malls and turning them into fulfillment centers. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. Uh, it led me to look into uh, retail arbitrage, buying products from like Walmart, Target, and then selling them online. And then finally, private labeling and you know importing products from China and selling those. And those were the first steps into e-commerce. Um, why it kind of moved in that direction, it, it was more of 
like what I was seeing from the Amazon side, uh, how I could start a business. Like I said, my experience was in real estate. It's possible to start a real estate business, but normally you either need to have a lot of cash if you're going to do the investment side or have a lot of investors to raise funds from to be able to purchase properties, get into it that side. Development side, you need a lot of money to actually redevelop the projects, uh, redevelop the properties. Um, so it kind of just naturally evolved into like, hey, let me try building some passive income. Then I realized I was really good at it and it just kind of kept growing from there to how we got to the agency today. Okay. I want to go off course just for a second too, because you brought up some points that I think are very interesting to people who are attracted to agencies as a first business, right? Or an entry level business, because especially, you know, part of the reasons why we've kind of um, maybe advised people, at least if nothing else, just to be cautious going into e-commerce in general is because comparatively, especially something like SEO, if you come in and all you do is SEO as a service, all you're wasting is your time and you have no required startup costs, assuming that you have internet, a computer, and some basic knowledge, right? Now, if you wanted to go in and do, you know, specifically a e-commerce consulting agency, or, I mean, so that's one category, or look at selling your own product on Amazon or, you know, Shopify, wherever it is that you want to do it. What kind of costs are you looking at for either of those compared to, say, real estate? Because, you know, real estate, sky's the limit, right? <laughs> yeah, you can you can spend a lot on real estate. And uh, I'm actually looking at some stuff now that is going to require a lot of capital, which I'm trying to figure out. It's not easy. But um, I mean, to get started uh, on selling your own products, you're probably looking to invest somewhere between ten to twenty thousand uh, dollars between inventory, the logistics, the advertising budget to start. Uh, that's at a minimum. Uh, obviously, the more capitalized you are, the more you're going to be able to market the product. The more you're going to be able to get it out there. But when you say when you say your first, own products, do you mean like uh, like white labeling products? Yeah, essentially, uh, it could be white labeling. It could be working with a, a product development company to design to design something that's different. That's going to cost even more money, but it's a common route as well. Uh, like for example, I had a call yesterday with someone who wants to manufacture a specific car part for a Jeep because uh, there's so many Jeeps and like this part's not available. It's completely customizable, whatever it is. And he's I introduced him to a friend of mine down here that has a uh, contract manufacturing company, does all the product design development for them. So um, if you have something like that, that's very specific niche and like uh, there's a big need for it, working with a product development company uh, could be a really good solution. But yeah, a lot of times it could just be, you know, I want to sell, I don't know, water bottles. Uh, I'm just going to find a company that manufactures water bottles and slap my label on it. Um, that at a minimum is, you know, building a private label or, or white labeling products. Um, but there's so, there's such a big uh, spectrum of what you can do when it comes to actually selling your own products. So you're saying you go that route at a bare minimum, you're looking at 10 to 20K. Start yeah, I would say so. I mean, you can always get started cheaper. Like, for example, I've started brands for with five, six K. Um, mm-hmm. It depends on the category. It depends on the competition within the space, how much inventory you're going to buy on the first run, on the first run. I mean, if you don't have the capital, you know, you got to work with what you have. So um, what about what about it, I hear it all the time. But what about drop shipping? I personally am not a fan of drop shipping. Um, oh, I know tell. there's plenty of people that do it. <laughs> It's just, I mean, it's another form of arbitrage, um, whether you're arbitraging different prices, price differences from different platforms, from websites to platforms. Uh, I don't think it's scalable in the long run. Um, there's plenty of softwares that can help with it, but realistically, dropshippers are working 
dropshippers on Amazon, at least, are on listings that other dropshippers are on. So you're constantly competing for the pre, uh, for the buy box the, to be the lowest price, to be the one showing there. So naturally, there's that competition. Plus, in many instances, you're competing against the brand themselves that are selling the product when you're drop, drop shipping it. So it's just not for me. Uh, I know a lot of people will do their own uh, like affiliate websites, essentially, uh, where they'll be drop shipping orders through there. Um, that works in some instances, I guess, or maybe influencers have a store where like buy it from my store and I'm just buying it from Amazon or whatever. Again, it just comes down to scalability to me. Like if I'm going to put in so much effort to have to deal with all that competition, why don't I just create something for myself in my own niche, uh, with my, oh, with my own control over the manufacturing, over the marketing, uh, the brand positioning, everything versus relying on everybody else's, uh, you know, work and product and competing with a million other drop shippers. I, I appreciate that take because there's been a, I think I call this the the death of crypto. I mean, crypto's not dead, but there was like that huge surge in like the COVID era. And then it just kind of plummeted in 2021. And yeah. it's finally like, I don't even want to call it stabilizing, but getting to a point where it's just not embarrassing. But like <laughs> ever since I just like plummeted, I feel like all the crypto bros came over to the agency space, back over to the agency space. Um, and prior to crypto, it was a lot of drop shipping and FBA. Well, but now it's like agency and FBA. I still feel like they're the stragglers that are doing drop shipping. And I've never been a fan of drop shippers or even really FBA for that matter, just because it, 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 the that kind of like the fake guru kind of vibes just kind of resonated in that space. And I just kind of kept my distance, but I've never had the authority to speak on it. Yeah. Um, I think you make a good point there. And obviously the people that are jumping from one thing to another are not the same that are actually committed to actually building something. You know, they're just looking for the next get rich quick scheme. Um, they're really good marketers or they're really good at getting in front of people and the gurus can sell stuff. So like awesome for them. That's great. I mean, I can't tell you how many agencies agencies we see pop up uh, that are just one person chops and they're trying to do it for as cheap as possible. And the work they do is not good. I mean, we have clients that come to us literally every single day or not clients, but leads that come to us every single day that are like, I'm working with this guy. I'm losing this much money. This is all messed up. This problem's happening. It, it's tough. And, that, and at the same time, that's kind of why we moved outside of working with like individual sellers to working more with brands because it, it's for us, it's a better experience. We had, they have the money, they have the capital to invest in our advertising strategies and we're able to get more consistent results for them versus, you know, the seller who's looking for the cheapest option possible to manage their advertising and doesn't have a real budget to invest in it. So, yeah, I mean, there's always going to be those people that are trying to sell something in some way. And it probably even happens in other niches that we barely even think about. But it's funny you mentioned uh, that because like right before this episode will air, we were, we were just actually interviewing Chris Walker from the legit platform. And um, he was saying the same thing. Like every time he says agencies it really means freelancers because it's usually just one guy. And, yeah. and those like those gurus who don't actually like learn the trade or commit to the trade and just kind of, hop into the next big thing um is one what's driving the industry down but two yeah. only doing yourself a disservice because you're not actually creating something scalable if you do make money it's going to be for a few months and then you've got to figure out how to go fishing again yeah exactly and that's it, it's it's funny i mean like i said we get this all the time from from the companies we're talking to 
about their work with this person. Uh, you know, they got this guy off of work and this happened. Like you can be a really good salesperson. You can get a client, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the results. And from that standpoint, the agency, the companies that are actually going out and hiring these agencies or these freelancers really need to think from their standpoint of whether they think they're going to get the best return possible or if they're just looking for the cheapest option possible and they're not really considering other options because that would save probably so much time and headaches for a lot of these brands that end up working with these people. They're underwhelmed by the results and you know, then they just end up get frustrated and having to pay more for someone else to fix everything. I love it. So, okay. I want to just confirm something and then I want to start asking it, um, some follow-up questions related to it. So is it safe to assume and to say that just like any other agency, you can come in as an Amazon or e-commerce consultant with zero, right? I mean, just if you have the knowledge, you don't need to have any really startup costs, you know, anything besides just your normal, you know, email, domain name, that sort of deal. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, at any, in any sense, any agency is the same, any service, any consulting, you really don't have startup costs. I mean, your main costs are how are you actually going to acquire customers? Uh, sometimes it's through referrals. I mean, that this again applies to any service industry, any consulting or agency. If you can get referrals, you can get uh, clients at a low cost. If you need to pay for ads, you obviously need to invest money in that. So yeah, I mean, essentially you could start with uh, you know us with no costs, but us as an agency, we started as sellers. We probably spent I don't know a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on our own uh, figuring out how to do advertising and what worked and what didn't. Then we had some big brands that we worked with early on that allowed us to spend millions of dollars and figure out what worked and what didn't. So it's all about like accelerating the learning. So the fat or accelerating the growth in general, whether you're investing in, in the sales side or actually learning what the service is, but the faster you can acquire clients or the faster you can learn how to provide your service, the better you're going to be in the long run. And it takes money no matter what, but the capital requirements can be extremely less than, you know, building your own brand, buying your own products, finding a manufacturer, dealing with the logistics, the importation, the the branding, the IP, all of that stuff. So uh, yeah, I mean, it is it is easier to start than, than some other things. So you mentioned some of the, the difficulties. What can you just briefly explain your business model? Um, and then follow up to that is, you know, based on those things that you've kind of said to, to be weary of, what have you done especially? that you think has made it more successful mm -hmm. so that, you know, those, what things do they need to avoid if people are going to go into the e-commerce space too? Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, as a model, we're working, uh, with clients on a retainer basis and have a, a commission as to align things. So that's how we actually bill. Um, but the, the deliverables we're providing are the content, the advertising, the marketing strategy, the merchandising on the platform, uh, and just, strategy consultant beyond that is like, how do you actually grow your brand? Because whether you grow on the Amazon platform or not, that's great. But if you're growing outside of Amazon, it's naturally going to lead to more sales growth on Amazon. It's, people are, people see your brand, they go shop, they go search for it on Amazon to see if it's available, if it's cheaper, if it gets there faster, whatever the reason is. So that's kind of what we do where, I mean, we're, we're, trying to help our clients from a holistic sense. I mean, our focus is just on Amazon, but holistically, if they're growing outside of Amazon, it's going to have a benefit to us as the Amazon agency. Um, and the way that we kind of achieve this is that as we've grown over time, uh, we've specialized and brought a lot of people that had specific skills in. So for example, we built out an entire advertising team. 
uh, we brought in strategists from other spaces of e-commerce. So some that were in D2C, some that were in Amazon, some that were uh, working on Walmart. It's all just bringing in different perspectives on what works and what doesn't work. And that helps us as a company. Uh, that's the other great thing about agencies is that the amount of knowledge that the agency is able to bring into it makes the, the agency that much more valuable or that their service that much more valuable. So it kind of, uh, in a way, is network effects. When you hire better and better qualified people, your knowledge of the, uh, your knowledge of e-commerce improves, the service improves, it allows you to bring in more clients. More clients mean you bring in more people that have the experience and it just kind of snowballs from there. I really, I really like the, uh, um, your take on if you grow the brand outside of Amazon or naturally it's the more Amazon sales because I was working with a pretty large beauty company, uh, I'll say after the podcast, but, and they, the biggest problem that they had was that their products sold primarily like better on Amazon versus on their own website. And so because they have to price the products the same, um, just for marketing purposes, Amazon with their fee and, and shipping and everything was just eating away at like their actual website sales. And I remember telling them, so <laughs> like, <laughs> it, like, honestly, if people are buying more from Amazon, regardless of the platform, like you're, that's basically your, your, your media spend or your ad spend is that, that commission portion that Amazon takes. So additionally, something that I, I had suggested or something that they were also thinking about internally as well was only providing like certain bundles th through the website. So if you go to Amazon, you can buy the individual products or you can go to you know the website and actually get a bigger deal for the bundle plus whatever shipping was. And that was a way to kind of pull that traffic back from Amazon, but it required a lot more ad spend on like social to make people aware of these bundles. So yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, it happens frequently. I mean, there's some, there's some companies that are all in on that. Like, it doesn't matter where it is. I'm going to push all my traffic to Amazon and I'm going to just sell as much as I can. A good example of that type of company is uh, liquid death. I don't know if you've heard of them before, mm -hmm. but they're, they're a water company, a water company. Uh, they drive a ton of traffic to their website, but all the purchases and all the checkouts are through Amazon. So it just pushes all the traffic there. And they're like, you know, whatever, I'm going to acquire as many as possible. Beauty is another good example of this because uh, typically beauty products or cosmetic products in general uh, are recurring purchases. If someone likes the product, they're going to buy it. The customer lifetime value is going to increase over time. So at the same point, whether you're acquiring customers, no matter what, if you're acquiring them on Amazon, if you're acquiring them on your own website, if you're acquiring them through retail, whatever it may be, it's going to lead to that cash flow just stacking up over time. So your advertising cost or your cost of acquisition is going to go down with each additional purchase they make. Uh, well, it won't change, but the the repeat customers coming back, you don't have to pay that acquisition cost again. I guess is what value. I really Yeah. So that's, that's really the benefit of it. Um, and we work with a lot of beauty brands as well. And it's the way we position it to them. It's like, yeah, we want to try to get as many customers as possible because we know they're going to come back and we can see the ones coming back. But at the same time, once we uh, get them to purchase, we want to see if there's ways that we can push them to the website to buy something else. And there's different techniques with that. Like I'm sure you guys have seen like product insert cards before. And, um, but in general, the idea is how do I get as many customers into this brand, regardless of whether it's on Amazon, regardless of whether it's a DTC website or whatever other platform. I can see Cody itching to ask his next follow-up question, <laughs> but I have one more to interject. Uh, I, I will forget. 
Cody writes these down, but I will forget. <laughs> Do you ever find it a problem where brands like Liquid Death who are solely relying on Amazon to make their sales? Like what happens if their account gets suspended or something and they can't? sell like has that ever happened and do you advise against having only like you know putting all of your eggs in one basket uh yes <laughs> i do uh for that exact reason but same point when you get to a certain level of scale uh it's very difficult for amazon to show you off um or you have dedicated account reps or uh, specialists that can help you get the account reactivated if something happens mm-hmm. um you know at the end of the day amazon is about advertise spending. Uh, if you spend a lot of money on the platform, they want to take care of you. So when you get to that level of where you're spending a significant amount, you get a whole lot of different support, uh, whether it be from their business development team, from their advertising team. They have a team called SaaS Core, uh, Strategic Account Services. Um, so like, you get access to all these different teams, and they're the ones that can really help you uh, resolve a lot of those issues. So in the beginning, yes, it's scary being 100% reliant on it. But in the long run, the risk goes down as you start spending more on the platform. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. And I will, uh, that was good information. I will now turn it over to Cody because I can see him <laughs> bursting at the seams. <laughs> yeah. I, this one's dense. I like it. Like, I hope people like this one because this, I feel like there's a lot of heavy stuff in here and it's, it'll be good. It, it reminds me of the Alec episode where I'm like, I've got so much. <laughs> I just want to ask, um, you know, uh, what I want to flip it. What are what are the worst things that somebody going into the space can do besides besides the guru thing, right? Besides just coming in not knowing what they're doing. Let's say that they actually, you know, they know the service well, they know how to go on with the offering. What are the the biggest mistakes that would hinder them? Um, you think in the long from run? starting an e commerce agency? From the agency standpoint, the worst thing you can do is like engage in black hat tactics. Um, I mean. There's so many different shortcuts. You can report competitors. You can uh, fake reviews. You can do so many things to manipulate the listing on Amazon. But if Amazon ever catches on to that, your account, your client's account is going to get shut down. <laughs> so there goes your client. Uh, it's like what we always recommend to our clients as well. It's just better to do it by the terms of service and play by the rules instead of trying to take shortcuts. And I think that's where a lot of agencies fall into the trap or a lot of you know, people starting agencies fall into the trap. They overpromise to clients. They're like, hey, like I know this. We can make this shortcut. We can do this. And not really thinking what the consequences are because they're just looking at the sale. They're not thinking of like the big picture of like how this actually affects the brand. And I've seen that happen a lot. Um, you know, we as an agency would never, we say this to our clients, we like never recommend doing anything black hat. Just follow the rules, follow the terms of service. Whatever Amazon says is what you should do. Because when you stray outside of that is when you put, your account at risk. And if you shut down the entire sales channel, if Amazon is your biggest sales channel, or even if it's, you know, uh, not your biggest sales channel, but still contributing 10 to 15% of your revenue, that's a big loss right there. Um, so you got to protect it. You can't play by, you know, the black hat rules. And if anyone ever tells you to do that, then that's not the person you want to be working with. Well, some of those black hat rules aren't just against their terms of service. Some of them are literally against the law. Especially yeah. the faking reviews, there's been a lot of FTC complaints coming out about, you know, both fake negative and fake positive reviews and companies going to court and being sued over it. Um, but uh, you mentioned in our, this goes along the same lines, but you mentioned kind of in our discovery call before we had this podcast episode that one main thing that you stopped doing in your agency was not working with like directly with founders anymore. Yeah. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on that? 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, founders are awesome. They're super enthusiastic about their product. They think they're the best one in the space. They've, you know, uh, there's no one else out there that can compete with them. But at the same time, founders are always really focused on profit. They're always focused on the money they're making. They want to get the most out of every single dollar that's going into it. And it's tough to work with them sometimes from an agency standpoint. Uh, because they are so controlling, they tend to micromanage. They tend to want to have a say on everything versus letting us do our job. And that actually slows things down or it limits the results we're able to get. So we've shifted as an agency to focus more on companies that have uh, you know, either e-commerce managers or marketing specialists that are responsible for it or even sales specialists that understand the relationship between investing money in advertising and testing and optimizing for scale and you know, getting to the point where you're actually getting a return on it on the long term versus a founder who frequently is like, hey, my... My ROAS went down by 0.1 today. Like, what happened? Like, <laughs> fix this now. It's like, ugh, come on. Like, you got to give us like some wiggle room. And Cody and I are laughing because we're in the landscaping industry and it's very seasonal. And every and every every month of that fail from June to July, numbers plummet. And it's like they're like, why are they plummeting? Well, it's the summer. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone's investing in this right now. Yeah. So, like, it, it, and that's the tough thing. I mean, you guys understand it. It's like. When you have people that are super demanding like that, it makes your job a lot more stressful. It makes you more reactive to what they're saying than proactive and actually going out there and doing the right thing for them. And yeah, that's kind of why we try to stay away from founder-led organizations. Um, but again, we'll make the exceptions if they have an e-commerce team or a marketing team that really understands what the end goal is. What a... I mean, so how does someone get started then? Because certainly like you can't, they can't just reach out to multi-million dollar companies without any actual like client experience. So you I mean, your advice right now is, you know, Hey, you know, I prefer not to work with founders because of this, but for someone just starting out, who is, who is ideal for them in the e-commerce niche? And then who, you know, isn't ideal for somebody just starting out? Yeah. I mean, if you're just starting out, Honestly, working with founders is probably the best way to go um, because a lot of more of the established agencies don't want to do it. So there is opportunity there. Uh, you're going to deal with a lot of nonsense, but at the same time, you're going to be able to, to learn what you're doing and test things and, and obviously bring value to the client, but also improve your service, improve your skills and be able to provide more valuable service in the future. So um, I would say those are actually not bad companies to reach out to. Um, and again, you can find a lot of those on Upwork, like, you said it's hard to get in touch with these million dollar companies. Um, it's hard for us to get in touch with these million dollar companies. So I can only imagine how it is for a freelancer with no uh, no real background or a, you know, a consultant with no real background in it. Um, but yeah, you kind of have to take the opportunities that come your way. I mean, there's plenty of groups out there where people are looking for help, uh, especially in the Amazon space. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities to find people that are sellers that are either getting started or you know they're a one or two man operation and need help. Uh, or it's a founder-led organization and they're trying to launch something. Um, so, you, so yeah, I mean, those are the types of people I would focus on. So you don't really have, an, it, like, there really isn't, like, a, someone that you shouldn't work with. It's more of, like, you know, keep your doors open, but make sure that you're, you're positioned to be able to help whoever it is that comes to you, whether 
you know, you have a retainer model or whether you have some kind of percentage model? I, I would say it really comes down to clearly defining what your ICP is. Um, like, for example, we have a very clear ICP. We want to work with uh, consumable products that are in certain categories. And that's what we focus on. We go all out on focusing on those because those are the companies where we can provide the most value in the long term. Now, when I hear uh, ICP, you know, I think of insane clown posse. I, yeah. <laughs> can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah. I, I, ICP means uh, uh, ideal client profile um, or customer profile. Um, one of the it's interchangeable. It makes, but, makes more sense than the insane. insane I prefer posse, the yeah. insane clown posse. <laughs> it depends on what your insane clown posse is, you know. Are you? We, we've never used that term in, in the business, but hey, you know, there's always room for change. So, um, but no, I mean, when you clearly know who you're trying to reach, who you're trying to help, uh, it's a lot easier to, to reach those companies and communicate to them. Like the way I get asked this a lot about, um, like how I kind of got started and whatever. And one of the things I always point to is uh, Simon Sinek's uh, "Start with Why." Um, I think when you can clearly define, yeah, exactly. When you can clearly define why you're doing something or who you service, uh, and you know, having a story and all that, it's much more easier to communicate and reach those people. Um, and I think that's what having a clearly defined ICP helps you do, and that you clearly can communicate in a way that helps your ideal client understand why you're doing this or why your service is beneficial to them or, or whatever aspects, but you just take them you know, from the, through the golden circle from there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. You, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to try going this direction and see if Jake stops me, but uh, <laughs> you, you've dropped a couple hints earlier on that I found interesting and I'd like to expand on them. One of them, as you said down here, where are you? <laughs> yes. That's a good one. Uh, I am in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico right now. Okay. You speak I, Spanish? I do. I've lived here for six years and it's, it's allowed me ample time to make plenty of mistakes and, and learn from those mistakes. Uh, I definitely wasn't fluent when I got down here. Uh, but now, yeah, I'm, I'm fluent. So how, it's been when a, did a you long start learning? learning process. Yeah, I learned it. So learning? I started learning young, but like, honestly, everything I learned through elementary school and high school, I completely, oh, none of that counts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I started learning again when I started traveling. Uh, so when I first came to Mexico in like well, the first time I came was 2009, but when I first moved to Mexico, which was 2017, uh, I really started focusing more on trying to listen and understand what people were saying. And I started catching on more. And then I traveled in Spain, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Mexico, and I was getting more and more exposure to Spanish. And that's where I really started to progress. And then I moved to Mexico in 20, at the end of 2017, uh, permanently, uh, and that's when the progress really started, uh, you know, being in the day to day, actually communicating with people, learning all the slang. There's still uh, times where I like, hear words and I'm like, no mama's way. <laughs> yeah, there's one. That's a good one. Uh, Another good example is like people ask, like, what am I doing here? Because they know I'm not from here. And what? There's, a How? For, like, <laughs> there's a word for work that you never learn in the U.S. Work in Spanish is trabajar. That's what we all learn. There's a work here, at least in Jalisco, uh, where which is the state that Guadalajara is in, uh, called chambiar. And I've never heard that word before. And the first time someone goes, que chambas aquí? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I have say, no idea say, what you're saying. They say, what are you working on? Yeah, like, what are you working on? Uh, I'm learning Spanish or... right now. So, like, I'm just trying to put clues together to figure out what you're saying. Yeah, yeah or que chambas or, like, uh, whatever. Yeah. There's so many different ways to say it. But at the same point, it's like, 
I, I don't know that word. Like I can't even, I can't even guess. Uh, there's another word here in Mexico, at least that's very common and used kind of slangy, uh, HR, uh, HR is, I can't even really explain what HR is, but it means like to get, to have like all these different things at the same time. And it can be used in such informal ways. It's like, are you hungry? Uh, just some tacos. Like, let's go get some tacos. And it's like, it makes no sense if you don't actually understand like the colloquial uh, usage, but it's one thing that's really hard to learn if you're trying to learn Spanish in the U.S. or somewhere else. Yeah. So did you, did you, I'm just thinking, did you sideload these? Like, were you like, all right, I'm going to Mexico and I'm doing business, but I'm also working on Spanish. Like, what's the order? Were these both in pursuit at the same time? Were some things, because, you know, I'm, it's it's no secret that I'm doing Japanese. Yeah. Um, the how how did you pursue that and how did you balance it too? Because I tell people you don't, especially with Japanese, it's just brutal. Just for, forget everything else about any sort of balance in your life. If you're doing business and you're doing Japanese at the same time, neglect everything. Even your fiance. Because that's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna piggyback on that earlier and say like do you like duolingo this at the same time or were you like antonio banderas in the 13th warrior and just listened and then learned the language honestly yeah it was more like that um i think i think like what you just said uh said cody is like really important is that there's only so many things we can focus on and some things just happen as a consequence of that it's not it's not intentional like for me we were focused 100 percent on getting the agency going and to do that, we wanted to give it the biggest ramp possible, which is why we came to Mexico in the first place. And then while I'm here, as a, as a consequence of being here, I just started being interested in learning what people were saying and listening more to what they were saying. And that just started uh, helping me understand the vocabulary more and uh, the conjugations of verbs more and different verbs that I didn't know before. And that just evolved in me getting more comfortable speaking. So like those were all uh, consequences of me just focusing on business and trying to grow a business uh, by moving to a place that was that would give me more time to get it started. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it was never intentional. It was never like, hey, I want to learn Spanish. It was like, hey, I'm here in a Spanish-speaking country. I should probably know Spanish. So then wh so, why Mexico? Uh, why not? <laughs> no, um, we... Myself, when I say we, myself, my two partners, we all moved down to Mexico at the same time when we were starting the agency. Um, we had traveled through like Riviera Maya, Playa del Carmen, Tulum, Cancun before, and we really liked the area. Um, we're from Connecticut in the Northeast and like, the winters are terrible. And it really started about like, how do we get somewhere warm <laughs> for the winter that we enjoy? And that's also close and also cheap and like, isn't too crazy. I mean, we weren't like crazy travelers at this point. Uh, now I've traveled to like 20 something countries, but uh, that was not how I was back then. So we went to somewhere that we kind of knew where the weather was nice. It was close to the water, close to the beach. It had a lot of things we wanted. Um, and yeah, Playa del Carmen is like perfect for that. It has everything. Uh, you don't really need to know Spanish there. I mean, everyone speaks English. Um, so there were a lot of benefits uh, and that's kind of why we chose Mexico. But I mean, oh, and the other thing is like more reliable Wi-Fi. Uh, that's another big issue that you don't think about until you start traveling because there are so many other places that you could go to in like the Caribbean uh, with nice weather, Colombia or, or wherever. Um, but you're going to deal with different challenges. Uh, Colombia, I mean, is more similar to Mexico from an infrastructure standpoint. But when you're in the Caribbean, like 
you know, it's a toss up whether you're going to get Wi-Fi, whether it's going to be strong, uh, whether the power is going to go out that day. I remember at one point in Nicaragua, it was the most frustrating thing in that they were working on like the local grid or something. So every Wednesday at like two o'clock in the afternoon, the power would go out until five. <laughs> Mandatory break time, everyone. <laughs> it was literally like, what? <laughs> like, I can't work. The Wi-Fi won't work. I got no power. I was like, oh, I just going to the beach now. But uh, those are the types of things that happen in places where you don't have reliable infrastructure. So Mexico is a really good place uh, to be when you're trying to do that. So I want to I want to put a bookmark because you said partners. I want to come back to that for a second. But I just want to clarify, too. When you were saying Amazon and you're in Mexico, are we talking about Amazon Mexico? Or are we talking about Amazon? Because Amazon varies country to country, yeah. right? Your expertise, where are your clients? And then I don't even know where to go with it. Can you just expand <laughs> on the Mexico, Mexico, including Amazon? What is that life like? Yeah. So uh, as an agency, I mean, we work on every platform. Um, the majority of our clients are U.S. companies and European companies uh, and some Asian companies. And we mainly focus on helping them grow on the Amazon U.S. side. But we also have a, an entire team that's dedicated to bringing brands to other marketplaces. So we take a lot of U.S. brands to Europe, a lot of European brands to the U.S. and vice versa. Recently, uh over the past year or so, we've started building out a team specific for Mexico to bring brands from the U.S. Uh, in Europe into Mexico and help clients in Mexico sell on Amazon. Um, but the majority of our work is on Amazon in the U.S. The other big platform here in Mexico is Mercado Libre. And we do work on that as well uh, because the share of e-commerce is about 50-50 in Mexico uh, between the two platforms versus in the U.S. where Amazon just dominates uh, so kind of out of necessity, uh, when we're doing work here in Mexico, we're working on both platforms. And if my Spanish serves me correctly, that platform translates to free market. It does. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Classes are working. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned partners. Mm -hmm. Um, what, how is your, how are your responsibilities split? Like what, what are you, what things are your strengths and things that you're responsible for when it comes to, you know, the agency and then what what kind of things do you lead to or leave to and also rely and bank on them for yeah so uh the responsibilities are are split pretty clearly um i have one partner that's really responsible for managing the sales side i have another partner that's really responsible his role now is like we call it special projects it's more like um like process improvement in a way it's like how do we figure out how to do things better uh, but he was previously doing operations for us. And then we hired people to do operations. Uh, and then I was historically focused on a variety of things, marketing, finance, uh, and some aspects of operations. Um, and over the past year, I've, I took over the CEO role from my partner that was doing sales. Um, so we each have our own strengths. Like the sales partner is really good at talking to people. He's really good at the relationship side. Uh, the operations partner is really good at getting into the details of things and like... You know, trying to make sure everything's working correctly, and he's very de detail oriented and process oriented. What's he like as a person? I'm curious. He's so. very. It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> oh, well, he came from a compliance background. He was working as a project manager in environmental uh, consulting, so they were doing like asbestos removals. So that's the type of stuff where you have to be really compliant with the laws. Uh, you have to pay attention to details, make sure everything's done the correct way. Um, so as a person, he's very cautious. He's very conservative. Uh, he's very hesitant, uh, in some points, which is a good thing and a bad thing. 
Um, Cody, he's but you. It compliments. Yeah, it, com <laughs> it compliments me, like myself and my other partner on the sales side because we are much more like ah, full ahead. Like, let's go, let's go, let's try this, let's do this, let's do this. And he's like, whoa, whoa, like slow down. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Cody and I have this. Actually, Lauren, my fiance, kind of coined this, and it was when we were we have an episode about partners and it's very hit or miss. Like a lot of, a lot of agencies, a lot of businesses out there, they have partners and like, there's always like this, you know, when like people get married and they get divorced and like you ask a divorced person what his opinion on marriage is. And he's like, don't do it. It's a trap. And like, I feel like a lot of partners are like that, like who like used to have a business partner, but we have, we have got this kind of theory that find yourself a Jake and, and a Cody and like, cause Cody and I are like opposite almost, but also yeah. the same. And so like Cody is very reclusive and just kind of like, I just want to lay low and, and I'm very like lavish and I talk to like all the clients and everything. Like I'll blow my money. Cody will never spend a dime and sleep on a mattress uh, on the floor. <laughs> and, um, but I was asked, I was curious about your, that partner because your sales guy, I don't have to ask what his personality is like, cause that's me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I figured that your other partner, because you, you, your business is successful. So I figured your other partner was like Cody and then you're just kind of the blend of me and Cody. Yeah. I'm kind of the mix in between. And like, we actually, we did a, we were working with a business coach uh, last year and we did like a, a summit or like a retreat with him. Uh, and we spent two days going through stuff. And one of the things was like, uh, getting our view on who we thought the other person was or who our partner was or our opinion. And one of the questions that came up was, is your partner extroverted or introverted? And obviously like the operations guy, he's introverted. The sales guy, he's extra extroverted. And then for me, they were both like, like you're kind of a mix. You're kind of half and half. Like yeah, I don't know, sometimes you're really serious and other times you're really talkative. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm a mess, but um, <laughs> no, it, it's, I, I can even get the vibe from, both of you, uh, just as the few times we've, we've spoken already on who's what and what, but that's what makes a good partnership as well. It's like when you have people to compliment your weaknesses or your strengths. Um, and I think that's exactly what we have uh, as a company. And I would always recommend if you're going to get partners, those are the type of partners that you have. I think a lot of the partnerships that fall apart are the ones where both people are the same. Were you, uh, were you friends with your no partners problem. before you partnered up or were you more like more so acquaintances? Yeah, no, we were good friends. Um, so the partner that's uh, more conservative, uh, you know, more the operations guy, um, I've known him since I was like seven. Um, and then the other one we met in high school. Uh, mm. But we've all been like really good friends since high school. Yeah. And they went to the same college together. I went to a different school. But like after college, uh, myself and the operations guy were living together uh, with his with the sales guy's cousin and an apartment and the sales guy was always there. Yeah. You know, we were always like super tight knit and we all kind of didn't want corporate jobs. <laughs> so uh, it kind of just naturally evolved in that we were going to try to figure out how to do a business and grow something. Yeah. You'd have to be tight knit for all of you to agree to move to Mexico together. Uh, yes. I, Cody always says this and I like it all the time, but it's, or I like it, but it's find, uh, find friendship and business, not business and friendship. And sure. so I, f I feel like your situation is very fortunate and very lucky and almost impossible to replicate. And we already feel like our situation, our partnership is impossible to replicate because we just found such a perfect match. But at the same time, Cody and I weren't friends before we started yeah. our business. We worked together at a previous agency and we recognized that we had skills that complemented each other, but weren't the same and both had the same goal, which was yeah. make money doing an agency. Yeah, I think that's a lot more common. It's a lot more easy to maintain. Um, with friends, like for us, it works well. 
Uh, I've heard plenty of stories where like uh, friends start a business together and it like all falls apart. The friendships like hate each other. For us, we're just like very direct and very honest and open with each other. And like sometimes it comes down to a whole lot of swears and arguing and like other stuff. But at the end of the day, we know like we are still going to be friends. Like whether someone makes a mistake, whether someone messes something else up, it's more about holding ourselves accountable to try to do better and continue to grow as people. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the coolest things from that perspective is that we push each other to improve. We see how we improve over time. And like the end goal is like, hey, yeah, if we all you know make it rich together, like that's an awesome story. It's going to be a great experience. And like, you know, it's just kind of the way that we look at things. So uh, for us, it works really well, but I know it's really hard for a lot of other people. The whole thing running through my head during that was Dom Toretto. Just being like, bam, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Family. <laughs> that's awesome are, that, that is awesome though um, are you guys split i think it's exceptional like equity wise just like like yeah. three ways pie chart yeah yeah we're split and we have a few other businesses that we've started as well that we're all uh in together we have some other partners in those um but uh yeah we're we're equal partners um yeah, yeah. That, that's it's like mine and cody's story too is like Cody was just saying this the other day. He's like, there's very few things in life that interest me. <laughs> he goes, he's like doing business in Japan, doing my side project on my own, and then doing businesses with you. And not even, not, not single, but like, cause we have multiple ones in the works. And yeah. he's like, I don't, I don't want to start another business uh, without you as a partner. And the feeling is uh, mutual as well, because I don't think this would, this kind of relationship would be replicated again. Well, yeah. As, as the, conservative uh risk taker i guess right I, I calculate out the risks and i see him like okay i'm gonna live x years longer you know it's going to take x years to accomplish these things what can i reasonably responsibly safely do and you know how how much more time and effort and investment and it, like you get older and you just kind of realize that you just don't want to do it again too like this, this is also, this is a very stoic, pessimistic view of saying very nice things, right? Cause it's like, I just want to work with Jake and I do mean it in a very positive way, obviously, but that's also the, like my thought process of it too, is the reason, the reason this is coming up is, um, we recently started house hunting. So, uh, related to real estate, right. Um, and real estate's a monster. Like it, it goes deep and, we're just barely on the surface and that's enough for me to know. I don't want to know. I don't, I don't want to go into this. This isn't something I want to learn. This is too much for me. So I think it's also extremely cool and uh brave of you to go and pursue that as well. Um, I, I would say that like, I think it, it definitely depends on the personality. Uh, it depends on the person. Like for me, I am, and like not to bring like the Myers-Briggs stuff into it, but like I am always super interested in trying to learn stuff. I'm super curious. I have an idea. I want to run with it. I want people to support it. Like I try to get buy-in. I'm constantly pitching stuff. I'm in like in fields completely unrelated or you know vaguely related. That might be something that I see an opportunity in. Uh, like a good example of this is being in Mexico. I want to start a uh, PEO, a professional employer organization in Mexico for companies that want to hire in Mexico. Uh, it's vaguely related to what I'm doing and that I have team members down here. But at the end of the day, I don't know anything about the PEO industry. I can learn a lot about it or I can find a partner that knows about it, uh, which is at the end of the day, probably what I will do. Um, but for me, like I am always super interested in learning how different things work. Uh, my 
in college, I studied, and this is why I say this, uh, I studied economics, I studied political science. They're both very systems related uh, fields. And like when I understand how one system like e-commerce or, or manufacturing or logistics works together with other industries, it's like super interesting to me. So for me, understanding how PEO works on a global scale or you know where the value is and having international teams, it's like, all right, well, this all works together. This is the benefit. I just tie, I love tying stuff together like that. And it helps me discover new things. It pushes me to learn a lot of new things and take risks in areas that I probably wouldn't do. Um, but at the same time, like that's that's what energizes me. It creates a ton of stress, but it also like gets me super excited. You and I are the same in that respect because <laughs> I was. I was gonna say it's how he gets his thrills. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like always shooting off ideas. I'm like, this is where we're at. These are where we can go. <laughs> and the, yeah. Like there was there was one I was I don't know why I thought about this, but I was like, Cody, did you know in the eyes of the government, our company is worth nothing? <laughs> and I was like, because we have no assets, we have no capital. We're all remote, and everything we do is digital. I'm like, so we buy an office, <laughs> and I was like, and we rent out part of it, and then now we have a real estate side, and now our business is actually worth something. But like, yeah. but at the same time, like you know, collecting that commercial rent from other tenants, and then also maybe having like a small space for us that we could just, you know, claim on Google Maps or something. But uh, Cody just like. Mm, let's put a pin in that. <laughs> yeah, it's like what's the what's the risk and reward? And yeah, some stuff seems like such a great idea. I believe me, there's so many plans that I've had. Like this is gonna be awesome, and then like I try to get buy-in from everyone else, and they're like, oh, "I'm not spending time on this." So I don't know why I keep thinking about it. I just get the only way I can refer to your conservative partner is your asbestos partner. <laughs> like, like, your asbestos partner was like, "Nah, I've got to pump the brakes on that one." <laughs> yeah, more or less. He's actually got, he started to move like more out of his comfort zone uh, recently. But yeah, more or less, that that's usually where it comes from. <laughs> Mike, or Jake, did you have more questions? I was going to give him a chance to do a full plug. And I feel like we covered a lot. So I, like, I want to give you an opportunity to, like, if people want to, one, follow you, you know, where can they do it? But also, if they're interested in working with you in any capacity, and if you're interested in, you know, getting that information out there. Why and and how can they contact you? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, when it comes to following, like the best thing they can do is, is follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram. Those are probably the two platforms that I use the most. Uh, for contacting me, uh, you can reach me through those or you can reach me in my email. It's mike at amzadvisors.com or through the AMZ Advisors website, uh, also amzadvisors.com. <laughs> and uh, I'll link all these yeah. in the show notes too. Yeah, of course. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like we we're super excited with working uh, in the e-commerce space. If there's any brand owners or any agencies that have brands that need support, we're always glad to help with that. And if there's anyone that's interested in getting brands or clients into Mexico, that's another thing that we're super interested about. Like when we talk about crazy ideas that we see like blowing up, this Mexico side is one of them because... The, the demographics are changing rapidly in Latin America and more and more people are starting to use e-commerce, starting to have money. And there's a lot of opportunities for the right brands to get in there early. Sweet. But yes, Cody, I did have a couple of extra questions, but no, that's all right. No, thanks for your plug. Though. I mean, no, the, the, the plug is good. And I like that. It's not like right at the end. So people still get to hear it. Um, and if they want to keep listening to the other info that Mike is going to provide us, then they'll just 
keep listening. Yeah, they're not going to skip over now. Right, That's right, good. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> Worked out well. Yeah. Uh, I kind of want to know how your pricing model works. You don't have to tell us specific prices, but you mentioned before that you have uh, a retainer and then also kind of a commission on top of the ad spend or, or revenue. I, I'm not sure, but could you kind of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so... Uh... It, we don't actually base it on uh, ad spend. I mean, that's a common model in the advertising space. Um, the way that we do the commissions is based on ad sales. So how much revenue do we actually generate for you? Uh, we take a commission on that. And we really believe in the model of having the, the retainer, obviously, to pay our fixed costs, but to incentivize us to do a better and better job uh, on your account. And I think that creates a lot more alignment uh, and a lot more companies are happy with that. That being said, there's been some instances where we have done so good that the invoice has gotten to thirty, forty thousand dollars and clients are like, whoa, 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 whoa let's bump the brakes here. <laughs> so at a certain point, you usually have to cap it or reduce the the commission or, or something to make it a little bit more uh, manageable for them. Because at the same time, they're going to be super happy with the service they're getting. They're going to be even more happy if the, uh, the marginal cost is going down over time. Mm-hmm. So for that, every additional unit uh, that you sell for them, it's not costing them the same amount or they're actually seeing economies of scale. And that is kind of the way that we always position it uh, from that standpoint. So it creates the alignment. It also helps them, uh, encourage them to work with us once they get beyond a certain point. And yeah, I, I think in general, it works out really well for us. That's really cool. I like I like the cap. Well, at first, the cap, I'm just kind of like, for selling more than, you know, you're making more and we're making more. But then like the cap also, like like you said, it encourages people to, you know, keep using you once you reach that cap because it's like, well, I basically won this trophy and now I got to, you know, ride it. Um, How do you track ad sales? Uh, For us, it's easy. I mean, since it's all Amazon native, it's like very Mm. well done throughout the platform. I mean, some of the off-platform stuff, Amazon has its own program called Amazon Attribution uh, where you can create like attribution links for everything for every platform. It's not the greatest uh, thing ever, but uh, it's another way that you could track off uh off platform traffic coming to amazon but for us yeah it's pretty easy it's last uh last touch attribution so if you saw three other ads and then you clicked one and bought it it's that last ad that gets the attribution mm. do you ever work with like affiliates like does your agency ever reach out to some affiliates in, in like a product niche we no we actually don't work with affiliates which would be interesting if there are affiliates <laughs> in, in the niches we work in uh, listening to us right now. Um, but we do do some work with influencers. Um, and one big thing, one big area where we've seen a lot of success in driving traffic is TikTok, uh, surprisingly, uh, not surprisingly at the same time. Yeah. Um, we've had a couple companies, one company that was on Shark Tank actually, um, started, they were, I mean, they've been growing with us since they started. We took them from pretty much zero to the point where I think they're on pace for like 5 million this year or something. Um, mm, nice. And, uh, with TikTok overnight, they went from doing about seventy eight thousand to doing like fifty five thousand dollars a day in sales, oh and they were gosh. like, "Whoa, wait, wait, I mean, what, what was come down a little? What bit, was that increase? It was what to what? It would have been it was seven or eight to fifty five oh, uh, wow. the first day they started running it. So I that's thought, what I thought you said seven eight hundred percent or something. You said seventy eight to fifty five, and I'm like, that's a reduction. Uh, no. no, that's the other way. <laughs> You're a seven or eight. <laughs> yeah, um, no, but like it, it's super powerful. Uh, TikTok is like one area where we think it's there's a lot of opportunities, especially if you do things the right way. And TikTok has TikTok Shop now where they're really trying to to push more uh, brands to sell through the platform. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a lot of benefits there. Yeah. 
could you could you elaborate on this is so this is your price model for retainer plus uh you know percent on ad sales um could you elaborate what on some like what other pricing models are out there like when you first started was this the prime was this the pricing model you went to market with and then like what was the evolution of that and what other options do people have out there to price their services in the e-commerce niche yeah so when we started we started originally on like pure commission um which worked for a certain point until we started getting thirty forty thousand dollar commission checks and they were like well uh <laughs> But it also really restrained our growth because it depended a lot on what the client was comfortable in investing. So if they don't have the ad budget and we can't make as much money, we can't make as much money, we can't provide as good of a service. So uh, we kind of naturally evolved into having a retainer to cover the fixed costs and then a commission to juice things for us and keep the the uh, incentives aligned for everybody. Another traditional model is um, a percent of ad spend. Uh, there's a lot of agencies that do that. They're usually working with companies that have you know, much higher budgets. Uh, you know, we're talking about multinationals at that point uh, that are spending millions of dollars uh, a month on advertising on Amazon. Um, so they'll they'll take their percentage from the total ad spend, but we don't like that as either because it doesn't necessarily create the same alignment. Um, at the end of the day, it creates the incentive for the agency to just spend as much as possible versus actually getting results. Um, so we tie our commission to results because at the end of the day, that's what the client cares about the most. There's no doubt or hint that we're just trying to maximize the spend uh, to make as you know to make more money for us. Is that we're trying to be as efficient as possible with the spend so that we can make more sales for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we our last agency that we were at. Well, not necessarily our last agency, but most agencies out there, a lot of bigger agencies out there. Cody always explains they have like an oh shit button, which is the ads <laughs> didn't spend this month, so we're just gonna light money on fire so we can spend the the you know the budgeted ad spend. Um, yeah. and and we well, it, it creates a political mess, right? Because at that size, it becomes it's somebody's job within that company to spend money. So it's actually more problematic for their job to come back and say, the person I tasked with doing this did not spend the money. So then yeah. the agency says, we have to spend it because it's more of a problem if we don't. And it leads to a lot of waste and, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, but that's that's the way a lot of uh, a lot of companies run. And it, it's, it's funny. I mean, that's why people still spend, you know, however much on a Super Bowl ad, like, because they have to, they have the money, they have to burn through the budget and the return on it might not be that great. But, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, there's people, the company is dedicated to this money. It needs to be spent. If you're not hitting it, people are measured on their metrics on how much they're spending or whether they're overspending or underspending. So yeah, it's a very delicate balance. We have a retainer model, a low cost retainer model plus 15% markup on ad spend over a specific limit. And what well, we work in the, in the local business niche. So there isn't like a return on ad spend or ad revenue or anything like that. It's just all lead based. So we bundle that with a cost per acquisition target and we're month to month. So as long as, so we tell our clients, like as long as you're, we're meeting your target cost per acquisition, then there should be no reason why you'd want to leave. But if you do want to leave a month to month, be. yeah, so you can leave. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, business owners don't always think logically when it comes to services and agencies and spending money. Um, you know, we have, we had a client we're dealing with recently where, uh, their sales are, I think 150% up from last year, year over year. 
and they're complaining to us about their growth. And I'm like, are you guys kidding me? Like, do you actually understand? Do you see these charts? Do you understand these? Um, but yeah, it, it's, I, think a lot, it's, I think a lot of them want to take credit for, their, for it than, than rather than credit the actual agency. Because we, when we have certain clients that are like, I want to spend more money, then we're like, you don't understand on Google Ads, you, you can't. Like we're at, your, <laughs> we're at your impression share limit before your CPAs just start skyrocketing. So, yeah. you know, take whatever money you have left and go put it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah, tell them too. We're like, hey, here's some smart people you can talk to as far as like next steps. But yeah, we're, we're, we're honest and effectively bad at making more money for that reason. But, right? But no, but the, at the end of the day, that's part of providing a service is like if you can't be candid with your clients and actually provide the real value to them and the real insights, because at the end of the day, I mean, they're paying for the relationship and they're paying for your knowledge. Uh, and being honest with them and telling them what you think the best use of their money is, uh, is part of that. So yeah, there's plenty of times where we're like, yeah, we can keep spending money on Amazon, but your, your ROAS is going to decrease significantly from here. Uh, why don't we put this money into TikTok or why don't we put this money into Google ads or, uh, even Amazon DSP, like on the brand awareness side, on the programmatic side. So yeah, I mean, uh, you gotta be honest with them. That's yeah. like the biggest thing I think. Uh, I like, so like, yeah, Cody and I are, are very on it. We like to consider ourselves very honest people, but eventually we're going to be moving outside of the operation side and, and, you know, doing other things or just kind of yeah. being the, um, the shadow figure in the background. So we, you have to set those boundaries on how do you, how do you, um, force honesty and that target cost per acquisition method is it prevents us from suggesting too high of an ad spend because if we do that yeah. target cost per acquisition goes up and then now we look bad so yeah it's definitely one way to do it i mean the other way is obviously as you hire people like you said you move out of operations uh you have the benchmarks but it's also instilling the culture uh within the team and that's it's a lot more difficult <laughs> i will say um but it all starts with being clear and communicating clearly with your team on what the expectations are, what you're trying to achieve as a company, who you are, uh, what you believe in. And I think that comes across a lot. So like from my standpoint, when I took over, I like very clearly communicated, like we value transparency, we value honesty, we value uh, communication, uh, we value problem solving. Like those are the most important things to us. If you exhibit those things, you will always have a job with us. And I think that makes a big impact when employees clearly understand the expectations of what they need to meet uh, to know that they're doing a good job. And like I said, I will never be like problem solving. I value problem solving. I value transparency. If someone is trying to solve a problem and they make a mistake and it costs us money or whatever, as long as they're telling me about it, I'm never going to be upset. Number one, because they're trying to solve a problem. And number two, because they're being honest about it and open about it. And like what it's a learning lesson on what didn't did or did not work. So I think that's the other, other thing as you move out of the operations is like clearly setting the expectations of what's required. And then when those situations come up where there's like an enforcement of that, following what you actually said, if you do the opposite of what you said, you're going to destroy all the culture. So yeah, hundred percent. I agree. I had, had one more thing I think I wanted to bring up. Um, so at the beginning of this episode, you mentioned that you were looking at properties in real estate in Mexico. Yeah. And I think I know what it is based on our discovery call that we had a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. can you open up a little bit about that? What, what are you, what do you got cooking? Uh, I'm always working on different stuff, but, uh, the main thing right now I'm working on is a hotel, uh, in Puerto Vallarta. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen. And, uh, there's 
a lot of challenges as a foreigner. Um, number one, there's rules around in Mexico about where foreigners can buy property or how they can buy property, depending on where it is. And uh, one of them is how close it is to the shoreline. Uh, the other is obviously uh, the con contractual stuff is all in Spanish. So it takes lawyers to help you translate and understand everything there from that standpoint. That's another challenge. There's another unique challenge here in Mexico with land that's called uh, Ejibo or Ejibal, uh, which means that it's essentially government owned land that was like given to people to farm on and to live on. Um, so they don't actually own title to the property, uh, which is a very big problem <laughs> in Mexico because you have to figure out who actually has the title. Um, and a lot of times the government, if the government has it, they're not selling it. So um, there's a lot of different learning things that I'm going through right now. Uh, and it's exciting. If I can pull it off, it's going to be great. If I can't, you know, whatever, I'm, it's a learning lesson. Um, but the big thing, the other big constraint is the capital. Uh, financing here in Mexico is nearly impossible or the interest rates are extremely high. Uh, like right now, I think the rates are at like 11 and a half percent. cow. Um, it's like, which just it's like smokes you. Doubled in here almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's very hard to find capital. So uh, right now I'm looking for uh, investors that are going to put cash in instead of uh, trying to take a loan. I actually got some pretty good terms, but I I'm trying to find some. Uh, You're looking at uh, more capital for it. Mexican investors or quote unquote foreign investors too? <laughs> Mexican oh. investors, honestly. Is this, um, I would assume this is, if, if it's in Puerto Vallarta, this is, I assume this is a tourist hotel of some sort. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah exactly. And like it, it, Mexico, it's very hard. I, I'm, U.S. investors in real estate understand U.S. real estate. Mm -hmm. They're very comfortable buying U.S. real estate. They're not very comfortable buying real estate in Mexico. And that's the route I went down. I, I probably talked to 30, 40 people that I knew. Um, and they're all like, no, nah, I like Mexico. I won't touch. Like, yeah, great. Uh, so then I kind of shift focus to my network here in Mexico. Um, and I, I, fortunately, I do have some good connections here that have been really helpful. Uh, and I've been able to get in front of a lot of people that I think uh, I will eventually get money from one of them. It's just a matter of whether the deal closes. Um, but yeah, Mexican investors understand Mexico. They understand the risk. They understand the pricing, the valuations, the financing. So it's a lot easier uh, for me to just be able to speak to those things with them. So your life has fundamentally shifted in the last six years. <laughs> like, like what briefly, what was that like? Like deciding to move to Mexico six years ago, starting your agency, or I don't know if you started your agency before or if you got, did it when you got here to now this seven figure plus model and then also looking at investing in real estate in, in not just like, you know, a home, but like commercial hotel real estate. How, yeah. how has that like mentally been for you? It's uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's exciting. Uh, I think a lot of opportunities come about from people you put yourself around um, instead of uh, locking myself away at home. I'm always in my office and in this office, I've met so many other entrepreneurs and business people, both from the U S and, and Mexico, uh, which has opened up so many other opportunities. Um, some things work out, some don't like, for example, one of the, one, uh, the office building that I work out of three, four years ago, I tried to start a business with the owner. Um, I mean, they're incredibly wealthy and, um, like he doesn't need it, but like, I was trying to do it because I wanted to do it. Um, he was interested in it and we tried it. It didn't work. It failed and like we moved on. And now like we still are friendly. We still talk, but there are opportunities. And I think the other thing that's really interesting for me being in Mexico or being, or for anyone being in a foreign country when you're exposed to other business people is that the business people are like, 
what's this gringo doing here? Like, who is, he? it makes me like more uh, interesting. Cody, I'm like the most interesting man in the world down here. Cody gets that when he's in Japan. <laughs> They're just like, yeah. what a white guy. Yeah. yeah. What do you, what do you do? Like what? It's, it's so interesting to them. And that alone opens up the opportunity to have so many other conversations. Um, so it is a benefit. Uh, like I, I said, like a, the owner of this building, I know a few other people that in peso terms are billionaires down here. And I probably like the, the likelihood of me meeting a billionaire in the U S is like, you know, pretty low and being friendly with them is also pretty low. And I have multiple friends down here that are like that. And it's all because I put myself in a different situation. I'm, I don't know, exotic. Yes, or something. <laughs> oh my God. I have, okay. <laughs> so Lauren, Lauren, uh, my fiance, she is like extremely pale and, and fair and fair skin and has just like blonde hair, American as American it gets. Uh, blonde hair, her eyes are hazel, but she'll say they're blue. Um, anyways, uh, she uh, was at Whole Foods and some guy tried to approach her and tried to, you know, do their pickup line and then he goes where are you from and she's like uh missouri (laughs) (laughs) he goes he goes oh he's like sorry you just look so exotic and i I was and i heard that i'm like from where scandinavia (laughs) yeah yeah exactly (laughs) it was so funny because you mentioned that when uh when we went to japan with cody uh, I looked at Lauren. And I was like, "You, you are now exotic here." <laughs> so it's like, "Wow!" It's, so you must now it's something you don't realize until you get out. It's like, "Ah, oh, I am, I am pretty exotic somewhere else." I go, "Huh?" I'm just gonna look a little bit different than everybody. But <laughs> yeah, getting. I think that guy's pickup line. I think that was just uh, it was canned and meant for everyone. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <Who knows>? no. <laughs> well, like, do you have? Um... Do you have interest in, in staying in Mexico? I mean, I, I got like follow-up questions. They're like, I don't know if you know these things, but since yeah. Japan is my interest, do they allow dual citizenship? How long does it take for that sort of thing? If you do want permanent residency or do you have it already? Those are yeah. like, how how deep are you into it? Or is it just, you know, <laughs> like I like, like business here. I'm having a good time, but those are like major life, you know. There's some, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't know if I'm going to stay in Mexico forever. I mean, it really, at this point, it really depends on my wife. Um, uh, in Guadalajara, I, I probably don't want to stay forever. I'd like to go to Puerto Vallarta and be at the beach. I, I grew up near the beach and like, you know, I'm in the mountains about five hours away now, which is cool, but it's a big city and everything. But like, I just prefer being along the coast. Um, I have, I do have my permanent residency, uh, and Mexico actually has some interesting, uh, rules around residency. In that first, they have a temporary residency permit. They have the the tourist one, which is what everyone that come going to you know Cancun or, or Los Cabos uh, gets, which is up to I think it's six months, uh, which is in itself awesome. Then you have temporary, which allows you to stay for up to four years, and then you have permanent beyond that. The interesting thing is that with the temporary and permanent, you, you're not required to get a tax ID. So you can live in Mexico uh, as a permanent resident here and not pay taxes in Mexico. You have to pay taxes from wherever you are. And, you know, with the U.S. being Americans, we have to pay uh, taxes no matter where we are. Um, But, for example, if you were Canadian or if you were British and you moved to Mexico and got residency, they both have laws that say if you're outside of the country for six months out of the year, you don't pay taxes in the country. So you can come to Mexico and not pay taxes. Canadians, write that down. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. There, there's your loophole of the day. Um, wow. But yeah, I, that's uh, I've done all that citizenship. Um, 
Mexico only recognizes one citizenship. So uh, you don't have to give up citizenship. But if you have Mexican citizenship, you're Mexican. You're nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. And that's it. So there are Mexican-Americans that have both. But in Mexico's eyes, you're just Mexican. Um, you're sure. nothing else. Um, like I have, and I also personally have citizenship in Portugal. So I have Portuguese and American citizen or you know, U.S. citizenship. Uh, citizenship. Uh, I don't know if I can get a third. Why do you have citizenship in Portugal? My mom's family's from Portugal. Oh, okay. I was like, so, this guy's like, like James Bond or something. Like he's got yeah, it's, it's, it's not that exciting. It's just family <laughs> stuff. But um, smart stuff. Yeah. Smart stuff. Uh, but yeah, so that's kind of how it works. That is so. Is your business established in Mexico or is that in America? The the business focused on uh, the Latin American aspects is here in Mexico. Uh, all my other businesses are in the U.S. Um, for simplicity. Mm-hmm. So, well, you pay the corporate tax rate, the American corporate tax rate for your other businesses, but then the Mexican yeah. tax rate. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it's I think it's uh, higher in Mexico the corporate tax it, rate. Yeah, it is higher in Mexico, but there's there's like all types of loopholes you can take advantage <laughs> of. Of course, like good uh, fiscal system. Um, but it's the th- the the reason I don't have like more businesses here right now is that it's just complicated because for U.S. tax purposes, every first of all I have to do all my filings in, in Mexico. Then I have to get all of my filings converted to English or translated to English, and then I need to convert all the currencies to peso uh, from pesos to dollars. Uh, which and there's a whole form uh, for this, doing it from a tax purpose, and the fine for getting it wrong is steep. <laughs> it's like twenty five thousand dollar fine for messing this up. So, <laughs> so you got to be your account cost twenty four thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's very, very, uh, very costly uh, to deal with this. But the reason I'm doing it is obviously because I see uh, some advantages to it in the long run. Yeah, that's cool. that's awesome. Well. Uh, well, this has been quite a lot of information. I'm Mike, I'm really happy you could jump on this and educate not only us, but our listeners or no, I'm really happy to be here. Like it was awesome talking with you guys. Uh, really enjoyed the conversations, really free flowing and, and nice and easy. So, uh, it's been a great time. I hope your viewers got some value out of this, whether it's e-commerce or Mexico or who knows what yeah. what products not to buy on Amazon <laughs> <laughs> furniture uh, <laughs> um, alright guys well uh, thanks for listening thanks Mike for joining the podcast uh, we'll uh, see you next time see you thanks again <laughs>